Good morning. Happy last Sunday of January. Uh, we will be in John chapter 16 this morning. Uh, before I get into the text, just a couple of things to note real quick. Uh, as John mentioned, the deacons meeting, I'm sorry, the annual meeting is next Monday night. And we do have two openings on the deacon board. John Faber and Doug Bauer are both willing to serve another term as deacons. But if there's anybody else who's interested in serving on the deacon board, uh, please reach out to me this week. Um, secondly, as John also mentioned, February 19th, we'll be doing the, uh, one, the one circle training, which is something that we've been um, had in the works for several months going back to last spring. Uh, it's an evangelism training, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's going to be something that's going to be so impactful for this church. Um, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives the Great Commission where he tells the disciples to go out into the world and to make disciples of the nations and baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the call that Jesus gives to the disciples, but that extends to the whole church to make disciples. And it's something that, for so many of us, can be such a daunting challenge at times. But oftentimes, part of the reason why that's so hard is just because we don't know how to do it, which is why this training is so helpful and so important. Because evangelism, sharing our faith, talking about faith, is not something that takes somebody who is especially gifted or especially brilliant or especially perfect in their prayer life or anything like that, that it's a skill that can be learned and a talent that we can develop. And so, again, I think it's going to be a great opportunity we have in a few weeks. Uh, if you're able to come, I would so highly encourage you to come. John chapter 16 is where we'll be today, verses 23, 23 through the end of the chapter and 33. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time we have to come together to worship you and to praise your great name. Lord, we want to pray for 
Debbie's cousin's fiance, Dawn, and the fire that she endured in her home last week, lost everything. Lord, such a horrible experience to go through. Lord, we pray that we can love on her. Lord, even though we might not know her as a church, Lord, to be gracious and giving. Lord, we pray for her in these coming days and weeks and months as she rebuilds after so much has been destroyed. Lord, we pray for your nearness to her in this time of such destruction. Lord, we continue to pray for Ron Yergler as he's recovering and on the mend. Lord, we pray for him and for the staff who are attending to him. Uh, Lord, we pray for the physical therapy that he needs, Lord, and we pray that he be able to, to recover well. Lord, we continue to pray for Jackie Bauer and the surgery that she has upcoming and further medical appointments and procedures she has in Mayo. Lord, it's been such a, a long road. Lord, we pray for good results and for more and more answers and clarity for her. And Lord, we do thank you to have Roy back with us today, Lord. As he's recovering from his heart procedure, Lord, we're so thankful to have him back in our presence. Lord, would you bless our time in your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. So today we come to the end of John chapter 16. As I feel like I say this every week, John chapters 14 through 17 are one long speech that Jesus gives to the disciples on the night before he went to the cross. Chapter 17 is a prayer that Jesus gives. He's arrested in chapter 18. Now, the significance of today's section is that Jesus is pointing the disciples to a paradigm shift that is about to occur after his death and resurrection. Yet, as we will see in this passage, the disciples do not fully grasp what is on the horizon. And so we're going to look at three things in the passage this week. And each of the three refers to the paradigm shift, which would happen after the resurrection. We'll see a new way to pray, a new way of revelation, and a new peace. And with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning. First point, a new way to pray. As a reminder, last week, when we were in the preceding section of John 16... Jesus was telling the disciples that in a little while, they would not see him. And then in a little while, they would see him, which is a clear reference to his death and resurrection. He also talked of the sorrow that the disciples would experience, yet how that sorrow would be turned to joy. That is referring to their response after Jesus has died and their joy they will experience seeing the risen Lord. It's on that same train of thought that we begin our passage today in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Quite the statement. On the night before he was crucified... Jesus said that the events which were about to unfold with his death and resurrection and glorification would be so significant and so impactful that the very way in which we relate to God would change. And with so many other places in the Gospels, 
We can, I think, so easily lose the impact of what Jesus is saying. We've been living in the aftermath of these events for almost 2,000 years. But what Jesus is saying is that because of his relationship with the Father, that his followers will have direct access to God in prayer through Jesus. And once again, Jesus is confronting us with the reality of who he is. For people who like to reduce Jesus or make Jesus to be simply a good moral teacher or a good philosopher or or a guy who had some great things to say. Jesus is telling the disciples and future generations of the church that prayer itself to God will be done in his name. And that the privilege of being a follower of Jesus is that we are given the blessing of being able to approach the Lord God Almighty in this special way. Jesus isn't Buddha. He isn't Socrates. He isn't just some wise man. He himself is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is the Lord who is the only one who can bring us to God the Father. He's saying that God himself will give greater credence to our prayers because of our connection to Jesus. And again, that is an absolute statement. It's a confrontational idea. That is either true or it is false. It is true that Jesus is how we interact with God. Or it is utterly blasphemous and ridiculous. There's no middle ground with that. Whatever you ask the Father in my name... He will give it to you. Now, that's not saying we get whatever we want. That if we pray for a private jet, we'll just have it. No, that's not the point. But it's that as we pray in the name of Jesus, as the people of Jesus, and in union with Jesus, God answers our prayers. To borrow from Grant Osborne, Jesus' name is not a magical formula when we pray. But that to truly pray in his name as his followers is to show that we belong to him. And that our union with Christ is the basis of the power in our prayers as God hears those prayers. Now, certainly, Jesus is involved in our prayer life, too. Romans 8 verse 34 says that Jesus intercedes for us in prayer. He prays for us and we pray in his name. But we direct our prayers to God. That's why the format for Christian prayer and the way in which I always pray at this church is to God in the name of Jesus. Jesus is telling the disciples that this type of prayer is on the horizon. But then he says to them in verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. His point is that that moment has not yet arrived. Once again, we're pointing to a new paradigm that is coming in light of the resurrection of Jesus. With that, we come to our second point, a new revelation, beginning in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. 
For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. To make sense of these verses, I think it's helpful to consider a couple other things that Jesus has already said in John chapter 16. At verse 7, Jesus talks of how it will be a benefit to the disciples that he is leaving when he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then again in verse 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So it benefits the disciples that Jesus is leaving because they will receive the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Spirit will do is teach the disciples and ultimately the followers of Jesus and lead us in truth. Most importantly, gospel truth. Now, in our passage at the end of John 16, in this section, Jesus does not specifically mention the Spirit. But the Spirit is present, because when Jesus is talking about how he spoke to the disciples in figures of speech, things that they have not understood, he's pointing to the time when those things will be told plainly about the Father. And the reason why that will be possible is through the Spirit. The switch where the unknown becomes known happens as a result of the inner workings of the Spirit after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, that moment is such a paradigm shift in all of human history. And I know I keep using the word paradigm. So on the eve of going to the cross, Jesus is pointing the disciples forward from the age of Christ to the age of the Spirit and of the church. Making what has been unclear, clear, falls under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't do that. Has Jesus himself ever personally taught you something? No. It's the Spirit who bears witness to Jesus, who points to the teachings of Jesus, who convicts us of sin, who leads us in truth. All these are things we've talked about over this past month. So the Spirit teaches, but as Jesus has already said, the Spirit does not speak on his own authority. The Spirit speaks in perfect union with the Father and the Son. He says nothing unilaterally. That matters because nothing the Spirit says can ever contradict or supersede the words of Christ or the message of Christ. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus says that he has said these things in figures of speech. But the hour is coming when that time will end. And Jesus will tell plainly about the Father. And again, he will do that through the Spirit. Now, in all four Gospels, especially John, there is this motif of misunderstanding Jesus. People, most often the disciples, misunderstand Jesus. Most often, when he's talking about his death and resurrection. 
Jesus is constantly saying things and people constantly misunderstand. Just to give a few examples from John. John chapter 2. Jesus talks of rebuilding the temple in three days. He's referring to his death and resurrection. People take it literally referring to a building. John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and tells him he must be born again. Nicodemus takes it literally and thinks he has to re-enter his mom's birth canal. John chapter 4. Jesus talks to the woman at the well of living water. He's talking about the spirit. She thinks he's talking about water. In the other gospels, Jesus speaks in parables that on multiple occasions have to be re-explained. There's a lot of examples of this. We saw it last week even. But why are there so many misunderstandings? It goes to what we've already been talking about. New Testament scholar Andreas J. Kustenberger suggests that part of the reason for preserving misunderstandings which occurred during the ministry of Jesus is that it is drawing a distinction between what could be known during the time of Christ compared to what could be known to the world after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything in this passage is pointing to a new era after he has risen from the dead. The things that Jesus was saying were so revolutionary, so outside the disciples' expectations and experience, that so much of it was beyond their comprehension. That's not to say that they understood none of it. We see glimpses of them getting it. But much of what Jesus says during his ministry is misunderstood among his closest followers. Beyond comprehension. I think of technology and how that's changed so much in our lifetimes. I remember back in the 90s when my parents got their first car that had the little remote that every car has now. But the little remote that you can use to lock and unlock the car. And my sister's here today. She can vouch for this if she remembers But we would take turns getting to press the button to unlock the car because it was like, wow, this is crazy technology. It's like we're living in the future. (laughs) The early days of the Internet, that staticky login from America Online, you had to wait for each new web page to download. And now we have the Internet on our phones, a connection to the whole world, basically all the information that humanity has ever known. It's a search away on Google. Now that's amazing. And I think of how unimaginable that would have been to people who lived just a couple hundred years ago. One of the greatest inventions of all time is the printing press. But now we can have basically any book digitally. In fact, anybody here could publish their own book. I think of the pilgrims who sailed across the ocean to come to America. The dangerous and harrowing journey that was. Or the settlers who went out west, months-long journeys at the mercy of the elements, diseases, crossing into Native American territories. How incredibly dangerous that was. On the journey, you'd have people die. You'd have babies born. Today, the longest nonstop flight in the world is from Singapore to JFK Airport in New York. You can get from one side of the world to the other in a flight that's just under 19 hours. And a mode of transportation that is safer than driving your car. 
And I think of how unthinkable that would have been to the settlers and the pilgrims two, three hundred years ago. The things Jesus taught about grace. Yeah, the disciples struggled to understand that message. And that shouldn't be so surprising because the world still struggles to understand that message. So many people who go to church, read their Bibles, who are nice people, still think that the basis for God's forgiveness is their own goodness. Still think that the basis for God's forgiveness is that they're nice people, that they're good people. And the Bible continually tells us it's not. It's the grace of Jesus. He forgives the guilty of our sins. He gives life to the dead in sin. And so the disciples miss a lot. But Jesus is pointing to the time when these words will be understood with greater clarity. Now, before we continue, I want to spend another moment talking about misunderstandings of Jesus. Because again, we see it often in the Gospels. Where he says or does something and the disciples don't get it. And other possible reasons why they include those events in the Gospels. Preserving the misunderstandings reminds us that the disciples were not perfect. They are not larger than life figures. They were people who were fallen and finite, who were followers of one who was not. Kustenberger also adds that the gospel writers preserve misunderstandings or cryptic sayings of Jesus almost as a literary device, which draws the reader into further study and the fruit of which is greater spiritual teaching that Jesus is making. Today, because Christ has died and risen, we have a fuller picture of the revelation because we have more of the story and because we have the Holy Spirit as his followers. Now, all of this leads to another question. Then why is the Bible so difficult? It's a hard book. The Bible reveals truths about the gospel, about wisdom, about God's redemptive history. But that's not to say that it's always easy to study the Bible. Sometimes it can be frustrating that there are so many different interpretations and schools of thought in Christianity. In fact, I've seen people use that as a reason why not to trust one Christian tradition over another. There's just too many different opinions. That's a poor approach. Just because there is disagreement does not follow that there is no truth. It should encourage us to study the Bible more. But here's one of the things that is essential to biblical studies. That we must study the Bible and let the text speak for itself and not read what we want into the text. Not read in your own agenda. Not ignore what you don't like. Not pick and choose. When you do that, there can still be disagreements or different interpretations. But... The major theological doctrines become clearer and clearer when we give the Bible its proper place. That it is the word of God. The problem with different interpretations is not the Bible. The problem is that there are too many segments of Christendom who do not give the Bible its proper place of reverence or who seek to add to or subtract from the Bible. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is how the world and too many churches treat the Bible. The problem is that too many Christians don't actually study the Bible. Again, thinking of technology, 
We live in a time where it has never, ever been easier to study the Bible, to have podcasts of sermons, to have free access to websites and commentaries. And yet we know it less and less as a society. We continue in our passage. Jesus keeps speaking in the next three verses, 26 through 28. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, I'm sorry, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Verse 26 echoes some of the thoughts of the earlier sections about how the way we relate to God will change because of Jesus. This also gets at the relationship between Jesus and God and between God and the world. In another absolute statement, Jesus said that God loves us because we love Jesus, which is pretty profound when you think about it. Again, Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. He can say that. No one else who ever lived could. Now, that's not to say that that's the only reason why God loves us, but with The love of eternal forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation is because of our love for Jesus and faith in Jesus. In verse 28, Jesus talks of his return to the Father, that he's come into the world, but his time in this world is coming to an end. Now, he's made previous statements like these in this gospel, and the disciples have always misunderstood We come to verse 29, where we hear from the disciples, and it's almost like these last three verses went in one ear and out the other. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. As we've already discussed Jesus had talked of how a time was coming when the disciples would have misunderstanding. And the disciples are like, now we get it. No, they don't. The time has not yet come. The time where the truths about Christ will be revealed to them has not yet come. And Jesus actually rebukes them in verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Jesus knows the disciples better than they know themselves. He knows they're moments away from denying him. We see this after Jesus is arrested in chapter 18. The going gets tough, and all the disciples, all of the disciples, abandon Jesus. It's easy to talk a big game. The disciples think they understand. But under duress, when Jesus is arrested, they'll let him down. We saw this earlier in John chapter 13 when Peter had pledged that he would never deny Jesus. He would die for Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. The disciples will come to a greater understanding, but that time has not yet arrived. We come to our third point. 
a new peace. Jesus has rebuked the disciples and pointed out that they're about to turn their backs on him. But this section of the farewell speech ends on a positive note. Jesus knows that the disciples will respond in fear and cowardice while under stress, but it'll all be okay. Second half of verse 32 into verse 33. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Father who sent Jesus, the Father who we can pray directly to in the name of Jesus, the Father who loves us because we love Jesus, while the disciples will deny Jesus and turn their backs on him, the Father will be with him. And in this final verse, before Jesus gives his final prayer, he tells the disciples why he has said these things. And the these things refers to the entire speech. He said these things so that the disciples can have peace. And he has also said where where that peace is to be found. Jesus says, in me you may have peace. So it is not peace that can come from just anywhere. It's not something that's internal. It's not something that we can muster up in ourselves or give to ourselves. In a troubled world, true peace is found only in Jesus. The world cannot give that. The world deals with so much angst, so much anxiety and stress, so much disillusionment and strife and conflict. Jesus tells the disciples that they can have peace in him in the face of tribulation. As we discussed a couple weeks ago, in an earlier section of this passage, Jesus has told the disciples about the persecution, ostracism, and death that they would face for following him. Jesus is on the verge of his great tribulation of going to the cross. As we've seen in these sections... He does not sugarcoat things with the disciples or for the church today. That there are difficulties. There is opposition. Yet he promises peace. Peace can mean different things. Perhaps the most readily understood definition of peace is that it's the absence of conflict. But in the Bible, peace is more about a security and wholeness which are found in God. Jesus is talking about peace in the face of tribulation. That peace is not the absence of conflict. He is talking about a peace which can be known even in the face of conflict. And the reason why this peace is possible is because of a right relationship with God. The greatest struggle and conflict and lack of peace is man's war and rebellion against God because of sin. Jesus is saying that he brings an end to that hostility through the work that he's about to do on the cross. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That peace is found only in Jesus. He is the one who can restore a broken relationship with God. But there is tribulation because the world is not at peace with God. Man does not want peace with God. He wants to dethrone God. 
He wants to dictate to God what is good and evil. He wants to critique God's sovereignty and dominion over creation. I think that we could do a better job. He wants to have a God who comes to him on his terms. But God created us in his image. Yet man wants a God in our image. And so the world hates God. The world hates the Son of God, which is why the world killed him. And the world hates the people of God. But Jesus promises peace. And in the final verse of this chapter, he points to why he can bring this peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The world that opposed Jesus. The world that crucified Jesus. The world that loved darkness rather than the light. Jesus has overcome that world. For the disciples, on the eve of their teacher going to the cross, it wouldn't look like that. When he was crucified, it would look like the world had overcome Jesus. But on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. The world thought that it had won. But Christ had won. Goodness had won. Truth had won. Jesus has overcome the world. He overcame the world when he rose from the dead. And he will overcome the world again when he returns. And so the people of God should take heart. We should have hope and joy. And we should have peace. Because we have peace with God. And we should have an internal peace in the truth of the God whom we serve. And his son who died for our sins. Who has overcome the world. We should, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, have peace that surpasses understanding. We have peace through Jesus. And it is only through Jesus. Because only Jesus has overcome the world. Because he did it without sin. In perfect obedience to the will of God. And so on the eve of going to the cross, Jesus points the disciples to victory. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What an encouragement that should be for all Christians. There are plenty of things that can stress us out. Have you watched the news this week? Russia and Ukraine. China threatening Taiwan. Iran threatening the UAE. Inflation is out of control. I feel like I spent about $5,000 on groceries last month. This month. Culture wars, rising crime rates. Things that our society deals with. Any of these can be very distressing. But we should take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world. We spend too much time focusing on the things that will rob us of joy. And distract us from the goodness of God. Instead of looking to the victory that has already been won by Jesus. Take heart. I have overcome the world. We have a savior. And while the world sent him to the cross, that did not defeat him. Take heart. I have overcome the world. When you realize the weightiness of your sins, that we have a perfect and holy God, and that we do not live up to that, we can rejoice in the one who offers eternal life. And when we're down, and when we're sad, and when we're frustrated, we can appreciate those things. Because we can also follow the instruction of Jesus and take heart, because we have a Savior who has overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father,
We do thank you for Jesus and the victory that he won on the cross, Lord, and the life that he invites us into. Lord, and may we live lives as his people. May we believe in him, trust in him, know that he is the Lord and Savior. Lord, that he is the only one who can give us access to God. That he is the only one who has overcome the world. That he is the only one to whom we can go to God in prayer in his name. The only one who, because of our love for him, God loves us. Lord, we have a great Savior. May we have faith in him and believe in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.